we have our own word in Finnish that's called sisu. It means that you never give up. That's the voice of Marku Jalkinen, founder and CEO of Farron Pharmaceuticals, headquartered in Turku, Finland. Listen in to hear insights from Marku about leadership in biopharma and how Farron is working to develop new immunotherapies to address unmet medical needs in cancer and improve patient lives. I'm John Simboli. You're listening to BioBoss. Today I'm speaking with Marku Jalkanen, founder and CEO, Farron Pharmaceuticals, headquartered in Turku, Finland. Welcome to BioBoss, Marku. Thank you very much. Marku, what led you to your role as founder and CEO of Farron Pharmaceuticals? I had a tremendous desire to convert the academic inventions into early products. I've seen that happening all over the world. And then all of a sudden I was in the middle of running a biotech center surrounded by great people making discoveries. And I had no way of moving them forward. So I really got a little bit desperate at that point. I had seen how that could happen. I lived three years in California. I went to Stanford to do additional research. And, and that was the time when, when Zenentech and Chiron Corporation founded some other companies as well. I realized that, you know, there has to be, there has to be a way really to get these inventions to the benefit of the humankind. And I just started to focus on more and more on that one. And, and then all of a sudden, you don't believe this, but uh, it was like mid-90s, fellow walked into my office and said that, Marku, I've been told that you have a lot of projects, but no money. And he said that I'm the opposite. So can we do something? And we practically set up the very first Finnish biotech company, which I then, they demanded me to become a CEO of that. And I was rather happy in that and, and took it public in, in summer 2000. I'm, I'm extremely happy of converting academic inventions into a product. That's my, my dream, really. When you made that decision that you wanted to, to advance the academic work that you were doing and, and perhaps bring it to patients, did you go through a long process or is a sh short process of, of winnowing and weaning and figuring which connection you wanted to make to try to bring that to life? It was not a short period and, and the longest discussions I really had with my wife you know, I was in the rather secured position being professor at university, running a state-funded a biotech unit. And then all of a sudden I go home that, you know, I was asked to run this enterprise. <laughs> How about that? So it took a year practically really to finish up that discussion. But at the end of the road, I'm really happy that we had that one. And we both were kind of very happy that I did it. And partially it was also involved her discoveries as well and obviously that helped she's at the moment very well known immunologist uh, globally and and even at the pharaoh we are using the discoveries they have done some 10 years ago or maybe even more than that sometimes you get lucky with your spouse and and you get right type of the thinking but also her influence from californian time was really significant to really come to the point where we are at the moment was there anything in particular about the science that made you realize that, that, oh, I can do something by creating this company that I maybe couldn't do anyplace else? I'm, I'm a data-driven person. Uh, nothing beats good data. It's a slogan I have been using. And, 
And it's the same for the academic work. You need to create something new that actually is remarkable in order to really get next round of funding for you. It's the same in the biotech. If you don't realize what the potential of your product is and then build a plan how you're actually going to take it forward, there's no chances of success. So you have to all the time think about what's the next step you do. And sometimes you do make mistakes and it's important to learn from those mistakes. And that's that's what makes you to really also happy from time to time when you realize that, see, why I didn't realize this earlier. But that that is the way. And you have to be really resilient when you do this. We have our own word in, in Finnish that's called Sisu. It means that you never give up. Whatever happens, nature can beat you, but you stand up and you go further. Did you consider the possibility of because the science looked good to you, but you, you probably had an inkling how challenging it is to start a new company. Did you consider t- trying to take the idea to an existing pharma company to see whether you could build it in-house? Absolutely. And, and we did have a rather serious collaboration with one of the domestic companies, but it didn't work out really the way we wanted. You know, having a, a new mode of action of something, for example, people are not familiar with, they often think that, you know, this this is too risky. This is something that we cannot go in because it's not really accepted by by the majority of the of the pharma industry. And I, I hate that. I just hate that that is a partially preventing the progress what we have. And I have a very good example of that. This is this PD-1 blockade, the immunology area. I don't know how many products we already have on the same target, more than 10 at the moment. So why those people do not spend the time to look at something brand new and something that actually could revolutionize the cancer treatment even further? What, what was that transition like from being uh, in academia to, to creating a new company in the sense of what it took to be a leader? In other words, how, how natural was it or unnatural was it for you to assemble a team and then give direction and and uh, align forces that's that's not something necessarily a professor is asked to do each day can be but not necessarily that's absolutely true and 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 i grew up in the entrepreneurial family both my mother and and, and father had their own activities and and obviously learned to really understand the the complications you can face but also research and, and being in the academic world, you, you have to be thinking your funding every day. It's not an automatic process. If you don't produce something important, they are cut down and, and that could be end of your you know, career. So I spent good time in, in that environment to understand that I can tolerate the risk. I don't get worried. I sleep well. I just take care of the things I can do and hope the best. And, and, and here we go. To be over worried prevents a lot of you know good good natures of the people really. What did you see when you were just? I'm curious when you were in Stanford at Stanford. What did you see there in terms of the way work was getting done? That was something you could uh, bring into your own process when you came back to Finland. Well, first of all, I understood rather well that if you have unlimited resources, that's kind of a maybe overstatement. You, 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 you only need to dream something big and, and then you go and do it. But then it requires environment around you that actually are looking after your inventions, are interested in taking them further. And, and I learned to know a lot of these early VC investors who actually 
said that there is no so bad invention that you, you couldn't get half a, half a million of money for it. Well, this is, this is like 80s, 90s. But, but that is really the key point that you have access to the capital that actually could put your ideas to work. If you think about Boston, in, in the 80s, Boston was not really made a high-tech center. It's now one of the global leading centers, but it was really academic world inventions converted to, to the early biotechs, and, and that's what it is nowadays. And I'm happy to have that we have an office in Boston nowadays. I really like it a lot. Knowing that you were creating something new in Finland in terms of helping to create this, this biotech space, did you consider building it someplace else, elsewhere in Scandinavia, in the U.S.? That's <laughs> the thinking I have all the time, you know, would that be easier or would that, you know, expanding faster? But then we do have a home base, so to say, and it's the academic world, which we are still utilizing today, you know, taking further the thinking what we have. And, and now when we have, a, for example, patient material from those clinical trials, they do important analysis for us. So it's part of us. And, and I wouldn't really like to leave it unreasonable reasons. But to build the business further, that requires us really to come to the US for the clinical trials, uh, you know, building a commercial arms of the company, uh, maybe even thinking becoming listed in, in New York and so on. So there are a lot of reasons why we have to consider that all the time. Can you remember when you were quite young, maybe, you know, eight or nine or 10 or something like that, and you were picturing that person you would be when you grew up? Uh, most of us, is a pretty simple idea, fireman, policeman, something like that, uh, athlete. But can you remember what that was? Does it have anything to do with where you ended up in professional life? Uh, I have three older brothers, uh, one younger one, so five brothers altogether. I had a difficulties as a fourth to get the attention from those three older ones. So I generated my own world. And that world was close to nature, close to biology, close to things. And obviously my, my parents guided me really to that way. So I had a dream when I was a really young already that I, I, I'm really going to do something that is related to nature. It just turned to be in the health of human beings. Uh, and then when I got married with, with the MD, it just got bigger and bigger the interest. And, and having done PhD, I immediately then decided that, you know, I want to do something even bigger and, and applied to get to one group in at Stanford and got in. And, and, you know, sometimes you get lucky with these things. Sometimes you have to try harder, but that's the way how it goes. So I'm, I'm, I'm dreaming my, my work even, even at this, at this stage. So, and obviously now, removing the immune suppressive elements in order to activate human immunity against the cancer. That's the dream I'm living at the moment. When people don't know the name of the company, and that's often the case with a biotech company, and you introduce yourself and you say, oh, I'm the CEO at, and then you try to describe that. What, what do people think you do? And then how do you explain what you do each day? They understand that we are trying to make a new medicines and, and they appreciate that a lot. They don't understand that we don't have that much of the revenue. We are just burning money. That's one of the difficulties you have. Even I've tried to explain that you know, we are investing in order to get knowledge so that we create value higher than we spend the money. But that is already rather difficult to understand. Biotechs do better in the US because they are used to see those and, and there is a massive amount of 
biotechs. But especially the, the domestic part is kind of a challenging. I, I can tell you a really funny, funny thing. You know, sometimes when I go abroad to talk to the investors, they may ask me, who is your domestic investor? Well, if I don't have any, I, I might say that it's my grandmother. When you're trying to give that the shortest possible description uh, of what you know Faron does, then we'll obviously expand that here in a moment. But that the the, the shortest version of well, uh, Marco, what is Farron Pharmaceuticals? How do you answer that? We are converting academic inventions into medicines. That's 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 my true true answer. And then I explain that we do have great funding for the the medical research in Finland. And there's nobody who is taking benefit out of it. And, and I wanted to be one and I'm still continuing to do it. That's, that's my straight answer. And then when they probe a little bit and say, okay, well, what are you trying to do to help patients if your research takes you that far? Is it possible to answer that at this early stage? It, it is because everybody knows disease called cancer. Even we have improved treatments, it's still really horrible to anyone who actually faces and we just understand so much better the biology of those unbehavior of these cells that there are days when when this may be become a chronic disease and, and totally controllable. Uh, same happened to HIV. It happened even even some some coronary disease. It has happened one day also to the Alzheimer. So yes. People understand and appreciate that a lot because the health is the value people understand and they want to have it as long as they can. So yes, that's 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 one of the motivation I have. It's easy to explain that you are trying to generate new medicines for the conditions where there are not really good treatments at the moment. Do you find yourself trying to describe what that gap is between what the existing medicines are and what you're trying to achieve? Or do you t talk about more in terms of mechanism of action? Uh, depending on the background of the person, if I meet my grandmother, <laughs> I will try to say that, you know, your your sister died for the cancer. That could have been prevented if you would have a, this kind of a, a med medication already at that time. So, yes. Uh, but then if you go to the expert, I start to talk about the commercial opportunity because obviously they are interested in that. And then I will say that if you look at the current immuno-oncology products, they sell maybe 60 billion a year. Just the leading product alone, more than 20 billion. So I think there is a reason why you should actually try to get this business done to the point that you can actually get it to the market. And for the size of Finland, we have five and a half million people. You know, having company, not like Pfizer, but but something similar would have a significant impact on our economy. What is it about the way you're approaching the science that gives you hope that you can fill a gap? You know, being at Stanford, I made a really significant work over there. You don't believe, but I have been receiver of the royalty payments from Stanford University for more than 30 years already because of those inventions I did over that time. Even today, it's just amazing. So. Uh, let's put it this way. I can see through the problem uh, with these experimental settings and take it further. I'm not expert in clinical development. I, I let that to the other people to do. But having that kind of a ability to see through the problem, you can solve it 
faster than setting a committee that then spends a year <laughs> thinking it, you know, what's the next step. You, you have to be rather immediate when you have acute problems. How would you like to describe the mechanism of action of the lead product and, and of your platform? I'm using a physiological example of it. When a woman gets pregnant, she needs to deal with the foreign material inside her because embryo can be totally foreign. Normally it's half of foreign because father has produced uh, half of the genes that are used to grow the embryo. Why that is not rejected? Why that is not foreign? Because there are cells that build an immune barrier around this embryo so that the mother's immune host system cannot recognize the embryo as a foreign material. And they bring in bone marrow born myeloid cells to take over the placenta. They are called macrophages when they are in the tissue and they build this immune barrier. And when the pregnancy is over, they disappear. Now, cancer has taken over a similar kind of a mechanism because they want to hide patient's immune system. So they use these same cells to build this immune barrier around them. They first glow, grow globally. And then once they have taken over certain parts, they start to expand, they generate metastasis, and then take over the whole patient. And we can now unleash this, this immune barrier and make the host immune system to recognize those cancer cells and start the fight against them. That's, that's, that's what we are trying to do. There is a massive a, a publications in the literature supporting this thinking that we need to control these immune suppressive elements. So we are not alone there. But our target is unique. We call it clever one for historical reasons. So a clever way to treat cancer. But that, that, is, that is what it is. And obviously we have tried to build IP around it as much as we can, because that's commercially really important that you can build a monopole. Well, people don't like it, but that's the only really sustainable way of building a business. When people hear you describe what it is that your approach is and they get it wrong, how do you, what do they get wrong? Is there a pattern there? And then how do you get them back on track? The practices people have throughout these meetings, it builds kind of a, I would say, behavior that is really difficult to change. Uh, you could use word, the world is conservative. And this conservatism that is among the clinical world is extremely strong. And, and that shows up that it's really difficult to get new ideas into a practice. And people have certain kind of a habits to be critical to the new things. They easily adapt some modification of the existing technologies. But if you come up with, the, I would say, maybe <laughs> something out of the blue idea, it really takes a long time. And if I think about the current immunology treatments, I happened to meet Jim Allison, who then got Nobel Prize a few years back, already in, in late 80s and 90s when I was visiting Stanford because he was uh, at Berkeley at that time. And, and he spoke about these checkpoint inhibitors. 
now we accept them like you know on the daily goodies but he had to have a long fight really in order to get those ideas through so i i really wonder i mean mankind is curious but they also very conservative they want to maintain status quo around them because they feel safe about that one ways people avoid dealing with new ideas is they sometimes slot a new idea into an idea that they're already familiar with. And they might say, oh, okay, uh, thank you for that presentation, Mark. I understand now Farron is like X. And then is there a pattern there that you say, no, that's actually not what we are. We are this. They may say that, you know, we are not really interested in that group of the cells because we don't really believe that they make any role in this disease formation. But yet they need to, you know, if you get to sort the data and you, you really have rescued patients who were destined to die, you, you get the attention and, and their, their understanding time-wise may get longer and patiency and, and then all of a sudden you, you may see that even like, you know, something happens in, in their eyes and all of a sudden they start to ask right questions. So where are we going to take this product and, and what are the next steps and, and you know, could, could you keep us informed when you make that progress? So, so it is interesting to see gradually making this kind of a progress, influencing on the people's thinking. Having a unique target, clever one, people are not familiar with that one. They don't know what the function of the molecule on. They don't understand what the relationship of our, of to our immune system. So they start to overlook the whole scenario and they lose their interest right away. So then, then it's almost impossible to get anybody convinced at, at that occasion. But our work, my work, is to go back several times, meet them again, say that, you know, we have solved the question you may have had in the past. You may have about that somebody else did some fantastic work with a similar kind of environment. And, 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 and obviously, we do have some examples from the macrophage area. Uh, where people really have been successful general data and, and now they are progressing rather well. Obviously, we need to follow those examples and tell them that look at those, those, those were there, big pharma got interested, we make it there as well. But this work is not immediate success. I need to tell that anybody who is thinking of starting it, you, you need to really have this SISU in order to <laughs> get it done and complete it. What makes a good partner for Farron Pharmaceuticals? Who is a good partner? Obviously, they have to appreciate our previous work and take that granted and then really think about how that mode of action can be applied, either into a combination therapies or as a standalone therapy to take further, and they have to commit themselves. Sometimes it helps if they are losing some of their major product and they need some replacements, and they think that you know this combination actually would do it, and 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 when they have that motivation, and if they are big pharma, they have resources to do almost everything. You want to have a partner that has endless resources in order to speed up the development. And and I have to say that we were very lucky to get Leukemia and Lymphoma Society (LLS) to join us, and they have made two times investments in us, and and. We have really been supported heavily by them, especially with this acute myeloid leukemia project, which 
it's the main interest and 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 that's a significant unmet medical need at the moment and and then then when you get soul that matches with your kind of way understanding it, it's just so fun to work together and, and move on with the project it's a long process do you allow yourself at this point to think oh you know if this if i'm successful if the company is successful we it will have this effect on patients or do you hold that thought for later after the data continues to tell you where to go i do that's the, that's my greatest motivation really absolutely absolutely to understand biology and then generate tools really help those where the normal biology is not functioning anymore absolutely we are helping current treatment uh, refractory or resistant people really to extend their lives let's think about it how we can make a better world that's that's what it is and obviously people who work with sick people hopefully they have had the motivation from the very beginning that they actually want to help them with many many ways and and obviously you help elderly people to to maintain their normal life you help really sick people to bring in new medicines and and the question there is uh, why from time to time we have a difficulties to to kind of a not understand the value of that work there are a lot of individuals who have great thoughts and i would like to be one example of those who have come from nothing to make something really significant marku thank you for speaking with me today Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. When speaking with Marku Yalkinen, you almost immediately understand his dedication to turning academic inventions into real products. Marku describes growing up in Finland in an entrepreneurial family where he could explore his interests in nature and biology. When he followed this path to earn his master's degree in clinical chemistry and his PhD in molecular medicine, he was in his element as a researcher. But he told me that as an academician, he never lost sight of his entrepreneurial viewpoint and understood clearly how his ability to continue research was dependent on developing data to attract additional funding. When Marku talks about his postdoctoral work at Stanford, you can feel the sense of energy and camaraderie he must have experienced when he was there between 1983 and 1986. At that time, he met Nobel Prize winner James Allison, who discovered the T-cell receptor. Allison was trying to educate the scientific community at that time about the idea of checkpoint inhibitors and their potential role in treating cancer. An idea, Marku points out, that was hard for people to grasp at first, but is now considered a linchpin for development of immuno-oncology therapies. At Stanford, Marku says he also learned that when resources are available, you need to dream big and find the people who will help create an environment to help your scientific advances grow to fruition. But as Marku points out, mankind is curious, but very conservative. While Marku may have the gift to, as he says, see through the problem, conservative thinking, that is the unwillingness to consider something new, can hold back progress even when acute problems require a sense of immediacy. That's what I think he was talking about with Jim Allison, that what may seem strange at the beginning becomes commonplace after years pass. That sense of immediacy and Marco's understanding of the unmet medical needs of cancer patients 
provide him with a basis for working to achieve his goal, to help make cancer a manageable chronic disease. I'm John Simboli. You're listening to BioBoss.